Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Flynn is the trader who is national security advisor. Sorry. Right. I'm not sure <laughs> I want to use the word traitor, but... Um, Sorry, I'm the one who said the that. The former national security advisor with astoundingly bad judgment. Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This episode is a Russia extravaganza. Uh, I have been following the Russia investigation, the Mueller investigation, uh, the ongoing, completely fucking insane story that we are living through. And I was thinking recently that I don't feel like I understand it. Uh, So much has dribbled out. There have been so many stories that overwrit previous stories. There have been so many little details that have come out. It's very hard to keep the whole picture, what we know of it anyway, in your head. Uh, And that's why I asked Susan Hennessy to be on the podcast this week. Susan is a managing editor of Lawfare, which has been doing some of the best coverage, both prospective and and trying to explain things as they go on of this story. Uh, She is herself an expert on these issues. She was a lawyer at the National Security Agency, where she focused on cybersecurity. Um, She's at Brookings, of course. And I found this to be, honestly, the most helpful and clarifying conversation I have had on all things Russia. So you'll hear and hear we're trying to get a big picture look at it. But along the way, she tells me a lot that I didn't know. And that is completely crazy. You will hear me react with a fair amount of astonishment in this episode. Uh, So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. As always, you should check out my other podcast, Weeds, where I talk policy with Sarah Cliff and Matthew Iglesias. You should email me with guest ideas, feedback, whatever you might want at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And aside from that, you should listen to Susan. Here she is. Susan Hennessy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's zoom out a bit. There, there has been a lot of Trump in Russia over the past year. What at this point do we actually know? So I think we have to sort of caveat what it means to actually know something. Oh, we're going deep um, real quick. Right. <laughs> the, the nature of truth. No. Um, right. So do we presume that the facts as stated in Michael Flynn's guilty plea, do we assume that that is sort of the reality? How reliable do we treat various sort of media reports? One thing that's been really difficult sort of about the past year on the Russia story in general is 
I think because the media is so overwhelmed um, and sort of bandwidth limited, although there might be other explanations, we aren't seeing the same phenomenon of matching stories that we used to, right? So one big publication would come out with a scoop, and then kind of within 24 to 48 hours, the other major publications would come forward and say, yes, we've independently confirmed that. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing these days is we have the New York Times out on its own uh, or the Washington Post out on its own on a number of sort of really important possible facts. And so it's a little bit difficult to know sort of what does it mean um, when, when one paper says that they've confirmed something and the others haven't. You know, we've seen some misfires. Um, does it just mean that they aren't sort of investing resources on that? So sort of with that big giant caveat of this is all sort of a, a cluster, um, I think we can say that what we know is that, one, uh, the Russians did in fact interfere in the United States election in 2016. That there was a coordinated active measures campaign uh, that clearly at an absolute minimum attempted to penetrate the Trump campaign, had contacts with individuals sort of at varying degrees of closeness to Trump himself. We can say that the Trump transition had a set of policy preferences related to Russia that actually put them at odds, not just with Democrats, but actually with Republicans at the time. And now, assuming that sort of the accounts uh, from Michael Flynn's indictment and plea are accurate, we can say that the administration took steps to effectuate those policy preferences before coming into office in ways that the sort of the technical legalities are a little bit blurry, but certainly a really, really profound breach of norms. And then we can say with some certainty that they lied about that numerous times after sort of taking office. So whenever we're just talking about sort of what did the Russians try and do, what is the collusion story that we have, I think that's kind of the, the molten core of what we can say. Look, we've seen the White House's statements. We've now seen statements sort of under oath. We know these things don't match. Um, we can presume the White House is lying. Then, of course, this has spawned a whole other inquiry into obstruction of justice, the various potentially unrelated activities of individuals kind of in the Trump world, right? So Flynn, um, Paul Manafort, and others, those are kind of their own threads, but aren't really related to that core kind of Russia collusion story. So let me, I want to go back on a couple pieces of this. Let's talk about the coordinated effort on Russia's behalf to penetrate the Trump campaign. Because that feels like a big overarching context here that we don't generally talk all that clearly about other countries' spy craft. But when you say that, what do you mean? What was happening? So when people talk about sort of collusion and coordination and what happened, um, they tend to be focused on the United States, right? So they're looking at the Trump team and the Trump campaign, and they're looking for sort of this grand unifying conspiracy that might not necessarily be the place to look for it. Whenever we talk about an active measures campaign and the kind of active measures campaign called— What is an active measures campaign? So uh, this is uh, this is the campaign uh, that Russian intelligence sort of undertook on a broad scale. So this is what is uh, essentially described in the in the ICA, the Intelligence Community Assessment of Russian Interference in the 2016 election that was released shortly before uh, Trump came into office. Uh 
whenever we look for sort of the, the points of coordination, the place to look in terms of what evidence we already have, and, and that ICA is really just top-line conclusions. We can assume that there is, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of pages of evidence that underlie each and every one of those sentences. They're really just giving us the kind of unsupported highlights. But what we can see is that there is an actual campaign on the Russians' part. The hub is there. Um, and what they're doing is they're reaching out to lots of different places into sort of the Trump universe or potentially not related to Trump into American media, trying to exert influence, right? And they're doing that in a covert fashion. Um, so it's not unusual for countries to have policy preferences related to one another's elections. Um, you know, Voice of America, there, there are lots of examples of sort of the U.S. attempting to encourage particular electoral results around the world. But this sort of covert measures campaign. So, um, you know, we see this story uh, again. Only the Wall Street Journal has reported it. Um, but a story about uh, Peter Smith, this individual who was sort of maybe not that well connected to the Trump campaign, very well connected in Republican circles, who is in communication with uh, various Russian or purported Russian foreign agents regarding the release of Hillary Clinton's emails. We see, uh, you know, the Trump Jr. meetings and the communications around that. So what we're seeing is basically an intelligence organization, a foreign intelligence organization, that is just kind of knocking on every door, trying to figure out where there are potential openings, either to gather additional information about things like the policy preferences of the incoming administration, or are actually looking to uh, influence that in some way and, and potentially in some way that that might be illegal. So this is a thread of this that I've found personally very interesting and has helped explain possibly to me what, what was going on here, which is somebody told me or made the argument to me that this happens all the time. But the problem is for Russia, say, that when they go to Jake Sullivan, Hillary Clinton's chief policy advisor, or they go to a top Republican foreign policy advisor – those advisors don't care. They don't care that they got reached out to by some Russian academic or some low-level government official or some state attorney or whatever it might be. They, they, they know how the game is played. They know what Russia is trying to do. They've got a lot on the line. They got nothing to prove. So, so Russia has a lot of trouble getting in to sort of top prestigious players. What they don't have as much trouble getting into are marginal players, people who are desperate for influence, people who are desperate to feel important, people who don't have contacts, people who don't understand what's happening in foreign policy around them and are, and are trying to get up to speed. And that's fine, except marginal players usually don't end up with very much power. But the Trump campaign is like a festival of marginal amateur foreign policy people, marginal amateur campaign advisors, family members who don't know anything about politics or foreign policy who are now suddenly at the center of a major campaign. And so all of a sudden you have marginal figures who are excited to get a call from Russia and don't really understand the implications of it and have a lot of power. And so that there is something structurally in the Trump campaign that was vulnerable to this kind of campaign that the Jeb Bush campaign wouldn't have been, the Hillary Clinton campaign wasn't. Is that, is that, does that accord to your understanding of it? Yeah, so I think this gets on sort of a, a really important point, and that is that people are sort of so focused on this question of illegality, whether or not a, a law was broken or some sort of secret information, that in some ways we're actually missing a really, really disturbing story that unfolded sort of right in front of all of our eyes. And that's that 
sort of midway through the campaign, you know, I think June and July is the timeline, June and July of 2016 is the timeline, you know, President Trump really doesn't have any foreign policy advisors. Kind of all credible Republicans had come out to sign these letters, the national security community, foreign policy communities, essentially pledging never to work with him, right? This was sort of the, uh, the, the apex of the Never Trump movement. And so what Trump has is really, really very limited options. He's got this sort of ragtag team assembled. Mike Flynn is the most recognizable name, highly recognizable now, but, but not exactly sort of considered the A-list at the time. And so what he does is he cobbles together this list of names. And it's a list of names that sort of caused a bunch of people to laugh at the time, right? So George Papadopoulos' name was on that list, and, and people in Washington, D.C. think tank sat around and had a good long laugh about the fact that Model UN was kind of the best thing this guy had ever done. And, oh, isn't this so funny? Isn't this so hilarious? The problem is, is that a presidential nominee from a major party put out a list and said, these are the people that I listen to. And he vested those people with apparent authority, right? He said, I, uh, th th this is my team. And that allowed those people to go out into the world and represent themselves as representatives of Donald Trump. And, and now that he's president, representatives of the United States of America. And that has really serious consequences and really serious national security consequences. And whenever you bring together a group of people that it's not just about sort of lacking the experience to sort of understand what's going on and, and, uh, and the judgment to push back, but, but also, frankly, lacking um, sort of a fundamental sense of patriotism, um, a sense of needing to play by the rules. So, that, you know, sort of one example that, um, that always comes to mind for me whenever I think about, you know, Donald Trump Jr. getting, you know, getting this overture about these, the dirt on Hillary Clinton. When Al Gore's campaign was leaked, you know, a, a, a set of debate prep questions during the campaign, they picked up the phone and they called the FBI <laughs> immediately because that's what you do. Now, I'm not saying that this is because, you know, there, there are great Americans with this overwhelming, um, you know, obligation to the rule of law. It's because they understood that, hey, if that stuff ever came out, it would look really, really bad, um, right? And, and the last thing anybody would want to be, uh, be viewed as is having been compromised by these foreign agents. So what you have is sort of this group of individuals that, that probably doesn't really understand what they're getting into, doesn't understand the geopolitical context, certainly doesn't understand the uh, highly sophisticated tradecraft of a foreign adversary, is able to make representations on the campaign and, uh, and about their connections to the campaign and the connections to U.S. foreign policy, that, frankly, there aren't kind of those, those adults at home in the campaign that can really quickly come out and say, I've never heard of this person. There's not that central checking feature. So what you have is kind of these, these rogue agents that all they appear to share is a lack of sort of judgment, a lack of sense of, hey, this is a moment in which I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to call the FBI. You know, the, the newest revelation is about this Australian diplomat who alerted the United States um, uh, to Papadopoulos' activities. You know, I think that really does speak to a sense by which this disturbed regular people at the time, this information would have been viewed as so troubling that intelligence agencies would have sort of alerted one another. And so these are the conditions that are sort of occurring. And, and we can see how that would be really, really fertile territory for a hostile uh, active measures campaign by a foreign adversary. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. 
Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We have begun to invest this word collusion with this almost mystical significance. Donald Trump says there's no collusion. It's a witch hunt. The Democrats say they're looking for collusion. There's a lot we already know. There are things we would like to find. What, what, what is collusion to you? And does something magic happen if we've if we prove it, like what what is the thing at the core of all this? Yeah, so um, as has been pretty well articulated um, by a lot of different legal scholars, in this context, collusion doesn't mean anything, right? It's a it's sort of a legal term in the antitrust uh, context, but it actually doesn't. There's no crime of collusion. Right, there's no crime of collusion. Right. Um, there are, however, um, other forms of crime, right? So um, there is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um, that makes it illegal to either uh, hack a protected computer or to conspire to hack a protected computer. Um, and there are sort of interesting questions about how various individuals that might have gotten involved at various points, either before or after computers owned by the DNC, the DCCC, and others were hacked, might have gotten involved that might subject them to criminal liability under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. There are campaign finance laws about accepting in-kind or, or financial uh, contributions from foreign actors. There is, I, I suppose, is sort of a background matter, like espionage questions. I don't think those are really at stake here, um, right? We're talking about sort of ingesting information as opposed to putting information out. Um, but there are sort of policy questions, right, that aren't necessarily legal ones. Then you also get to the question of representations, and that's where you see lots and lots of people getting hung up here. The Flynn Kislyak phone calls. So we have the and Logan Kislyak is the Russian ambassador. Right. Um, the Russian ambassador to the United States that and Michael Flynn— Flynn is the traitor who is national security advisor. 
Sorry. Right. I'm not sure I want to use the word traitor, but... Um, Sorry, I'm the one who said The that. former National Security Advisor with astoundingly bad judgment. But he's Michael Flynn is not the National Security Advisor, critically, at the moment that he engages in these series of phone calls. Um, so Barack Obama is executing a policy, uh, imposing sanctions and expelling Russian diplomats. He's actually being criticized by the Republicans in that moment for not doing enough, right? So this is sort of bipartisan. They interfered in our elections. We're going to hit him back really hard hard. Donald Trump has won. Great. That's a legitimate election. No one's calling into sort of question the legitimacy of that election. This is part of the United States foreign policy that's being enacted. It has really significant consequences for the future elections of our allies. Um, and, and we have one president in the United States at a time. And this is, in, this is sort of captured by the Logan Act. Now, it's never the Logan Act. No one's ever going to be indicted under the Logan Act. But I just want to say very quickly what the Logan Act is. So the Logan Act is the law that makes it essentially illegal for a private citizen to interfere in uh, in the foreign uh, affairs of the United States. It's really, really uh, broadly worded. There's never been uh, a conviction. I think maybe there's only been one indictment. It's probably unconstitutional if it ever actually was attempted to be enforced. But there it is. And, and what it is is a statute that sort of captures a norm, which is that we have one president at a time. And even if it's not the president of your party, they get to be the president and they get to be the only president. And so there's this weird thing that happens during the transition in which we expect sort of uh, the incoming administration to coordinate and sort of be respectful because, you know, having multiple presidents, having too many cooks in the kitchen can have really, really serious consequences, especially when we think about the fact that those communications that Jared Kushner was reportedly attempting to have uh, by using Russian uh, embassy comms equipment, this is sort of a, a shocking but, but story that's kind of gone by the wayside that he had reached out to the Russians to have this covert channel. Now, you would use Russian communication equipment to avoid the detection of the U.S. intelligence community. Now, the U.S. intelligence community cares about that communication, not because of the policy preferences of the incoming administration, but because we have troops on the battlefield in places like Syria, in which communication about uh, potential sort of coordination with Russian activity is really, really important for DOD to know. Um, so uh, in this period in which Michael Flynn is the national security advisor-elect, so in the transition period, he's doing things that are a violation of this norm, potentially a violation of this law, and also just look really bad, are really suspicious. Why is this your policy? How does this help make America great again? Why are you breaking with your own party? Then whenever it sort of comes to light kind of in early January, instead of coming forward with sort of a robust defense of why exactly they want to have a warming of relations and why they believe that these policy steps, like actively trying to undermine the sanctions imposed by the sitting president, would help them achieve that, they lie about it. So they lie about it to the American people. More critically, they lie about it to the FBI. Uh, also query whether or not they lied about it to congressional investigators, which also makes it a crime. So whenever we're talking about sort of what are the, the legal issues that we might see, I think most of the legal issues are all those tangential secondary ones. But there is a big, fat policy judgment one at the center, which is, why did you do this? And if you are willing to defend the substance of sort of your, the nature of your engagement and the goal, why did you lie about it, you know, to the American people and, and to, the, to the FBI? So when you think about this and recognizing there's a lot we don't know, but when you, when you try to put the picture together in your head, 
what is an innocent version of it or the most innocent version of it? So I don't know. And I mean, look, we're, we're uh, both in terms of guilt and innocence, you know, we're just kind of speculating wildly. I think that the innocent version that most sort of accounts with the facts, although it has its own pretty troubling implications, is that it's a group of amateurs who want to have this reset with Russia sort of because they have their own foreign policy instincts. Now, the reset with Russia, you know, Bush wanted it, Obama wanted it. This is not um, the notion of wanting warming relations uh, is certainly not new or particular. The difference is, is that those prior presidents said it's only going to happen on our terms. It's only going to happen in exchange for greater respect for human rights. Stop killing journalists, right? There, there was a laundry list of, of things that, the, that we wanted Russia to do in order to come to the table and have this better relationship moving forward. Um, it appears that the Trump campaign uh, or the, the sort of the, I guess, the Trump administration now, they want all the benefits um, uh, and, and sort of what are clearly benefits of having a better relationship. And they don't care so much about sort of those um, those other conditions. They're less invested in some of those human rights issues. Um, so this was a policy, uh, a policy preference. A lot of this administration's policies and this transition and campaign's policies were driven by the president's sense of personal ego and narcissism. For whatever reason, he perceived Vladimir Putin and the Russians as being favorable to him, liking him, praising him. I think a lot of that was actually based on a series of mistranslations about Putin's own uh, own language. Um, uh, and so, right, so he wants to have this sort of the, this warming of, of relations. Um, there is an active measures campaign, but... They don't know what it is. They don't recognize it for what it is. Sure, there's a few very, very peripheral actors who have nothing to nothing really to do with the campaign, but maybe say or do some bad things on behalf on, on their behalf. But it really is too attenuated and a, a connection to fairly hold them accountable for it. And then, sort of, uh, once all of this stuff starts to come to light, because they are political amateurs, because their instinct is not to want to be transparent and accountable. They decide that the politically expedient thing is to not be honest about it. So I guess the most innocent explanation, if you're sort of coming from the president's standpoint, is a lot of people lie to him. A lot of people lie and obfuscate things from his senior staff. Now, it makes it sort of uh, hard to understand why he wouldn't have sought out additional information uh, from the executive branch, from the intelligence communities, from the FBI. But let's assume he didn't know that they existed, didn't understand that he had access to that stuff. And so what you have is sort of, you know, maybe policy preferences that we personally don't share. Republicans traditionally don't share. Democrats traditionally don't share. But but hey, they're, you know, this is the the policy preference of the elected leader of the United States um, combined with some amateur missteps. Um, And then when it started to come forward in a way that was looking nefarious, even though it wasn't really nefarious or not as nefarious as it seemed, uh, you know, it's the cover-up is worse than the crime. Um, I think that's kind of, you know, the the most innocent uh, sort of coherent explanation I can come up with. Um, then I think the the scale sort of goes up from there into really far more nefarious let, explanations. Let me ask about one piece of that because I agree with that being broadly the the innocent explanation. You have a bunch of people who don't understand what's going on, make some bad decisions, and then 
go into sort of an overdrive of defensiveness, cover up lying, firing James Comey, like just make mistake after mistake after mistake. One thing within that, which I wonder about, is another version of that is a world in which they kind of quote unquote colluded and didn't understand really that that was what they were doing, that it had this valence. And, and I mean that like this. This was a team, as we've said a bunch of times now, of political amateurs. But one thing you learn as you begin doing politics is you work with a lot of different people. You work with a lot of interest groups. You work, if you're a Republican, with the Heritage Foundation, with the Chamber of Commerce, with the Mercer family, right? All these people who give you money or have policy preferences, they somehow give you support and you are in some kind of communication conversation with them. Sometimes it's support is opposition research. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's ground troops, right? Democrats work with unions. They work with environmental groups, all of it. I wonder sometimes whether they understood that you can't do that with Russia, that you can't do it with foreign governments, that there is a category difference between working together with a foreign government on a crime <laughs> to uh, influence an American election and working with one of the many groups that might come to them in a normal way and say, you know, James O'Keefe, right? If James O'Keefe had come to them and said, "We, I have a tape from inside the Hillary Clinton campaign showing them saying terrible things about Bernie Sanders – and the German administration was like, great, like release that tape, we'll re retweet it. I don't think anybody would have cared. And I think, I wonder if it's possible they saw Russia just as like another in an endless line of people who wanted to work with them, maybe had someone, something to offer them. They tried to work back. It wasn't a big deal to anyone at the time because this was happening a lot. And then it's only when it begins coming out that the whole rest of the world says, no, 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 if it was Russia, that's totally different. And then these guys are like, oh, absolutely not. We didn't do anything with Russia. We would have never done that. And then you get into the lying and the covering up and, and all the rest of it. But it just, it seems possible to me that there was a lot that went wrong here that they didn't even understand the severity of what it is they were doing in the moment. So I think that's plausible. Um, we have a, a pretty uh, fundamental principle in the United States, which is that ignorance of the law is not an excuse. Agreed. Yes, I'm not. The fact that you don't know uh, that you might be violating a law, either in spirit or technicality, um, oftentimes doesn't matter to whether or not um, you've possessed the requisite mental state. I think if that theory is correct, it goes to a notion um, that is deeper than just naivete, and that is that... Republicans and Democrats in the United States, you know, we do have a set of shared pre-political commitments. Those things that we care about or are supposed to care about more than kind of the individual policies on taxation, the size of the social safety net, all of these things that, you know, we kind of duke out every day. And that is a commitment to things like uh, the rule of law, uh, legitimate elections, right? So sort of th these these notions that even, you know, we can fight about voter suppression, all these other things, but but in, in big ways, it's sort of, it's about what are our commitments as Americans? What is our commitment as a Western democracy? When we talk about sort of spreading, you know, American ideas around the globe, what are we talking about? You know, free speech issues. And Whenever we sort of, uh, you know, whenever we're positing that, hey, they just didn't realize that having a foreign country attempt to covertly influence the United States election, not to mention a hostile foreign adversary attempt to do so, uh, potentially by violating laws, 
right? That speaks to something more than just, hey, we didn't know this was how you're going to play the game. It, it says that, you know, the way they think about the United States as an institution, and they are now the guardians of, of sort of the executive branch, certainly, but, but lots of American institutions at this point, that they don't feel the same way about this country that most other people do, and most other people do in a way that actually doesn't really matter regarding their sort of their party identification doesn't really matter. Um, so I do think that I think that's a perfectly plausible, maybe even a likely explanation. But to me, at least, it raises other really, really profound questions about sort of, you know, what do you think is a legitimate election and how do you define democracy and, and, and frankly, sort of right and wrong? Um, that gets into, to, you know, more nuanced and certainly non-justiciable questions. Uh, but I think there's a, there's a series of uh, potentially very unpleasant answers down that path. And what is the bad version of this story? What is, what is the version that's consistent with what we know now that if you heard it, it would, you would say, well, that, that was what I feared. So I think we have to kind of put away this notion of Trump is a Russian agent, you know, he's an actual Manchurian candidate, you know, sort of the the treason, treason, treason stuff. I, I think that's, you know, uh, outside the realm of sort of what reasonable people have to consider. That said, whenever you look at individuals like Paul Manafort, you look at the histories and the legal histories of people like Carter Page, the worst case scenario or, or one very bad scenario, I suppose, is that uh, the Trump campaign and, and now potentially the Trump administration is thoroughly infiltrated by individuals that are working on behalf of a foreign adversary that the principles of the Trump campaign, including the president himself, are either aware of that fact or should have been aware of that fact, right? Or sort of are on the best, in the best explanation, willfully blind. They just don't care. All they care about is whether or not they share the single goal of getting Trump elected president, any other policy goals, any other sort of, uh, you know, human rights or democratic or sort of insert whatever we're talking about here, uh, you know, overlap of interest be damned, the law be damned, uh, you know, all they care about is whether or not people are working to get Trump elected, and that there are a series of financial entanglements because the president and his family and his senior officials and his cabinet have failed to at all sufficiently divest from their businesses such that we are now in a situation in which the critical foreign policy of the United States is being driven by some combination of people who are working on behalf of a foreign adversary's goals, the president's own ego and narcissism, sort of regarding what he perceives as the, as the legitimacy of his election, and a set of hidden financial incentives that accrue to whatever various individuals, such that the decision-making at the top of the executive branch is not in any meaningful way being guided by the best interests of the American people as this administration understands them, but instead by a different set of interests. And I think that is 
you know, maybe it's not the, you know, he's, you know, in 1984, Putin and Trump meet at a beauty pageant or whatever kind of the conspiracy theory version of this is. But it's still a really, really profoundly upsetting and extreme account uh, uh, with pretty serious implications. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. We have been talking throughout the, the campaign and its aftermath really about the possibility of political entanglements. But Jared Kushner has had quite a few loans and um, <laughs> financial ties to Russian and Russian-related uh, investment funds. Donald Trump, uh, we don't have a full view of his finances, but certainly one reason a lot of people suspect he might not want to give us a full view of his finances is that, is that there might be a lot of Russian connections there. What do we know here? Well, we know very little, um, in part because the president hasn't divested from his businesses um, and he hasn't provided basic transparency into his finances. And so that creates a situation in which it's impossible to evaluate the conduct he's undertaken in the past. And it's actually impossible to evaluate how his personal financial interests might actually be interacting with policy decisions right now in real time. Certainly, there are a series of warnings or sort of red flags. Not all of them are related to Russia, actually. So whenever we talk about the president's businesses, um, sort of the one article that I think was really, really stunning this year that got very, very little pickup um, was actually something published in The New Yorker by Adam Davidson that was about a series of or a hotel deal that the Trump organization undertook in Azerbaijan. Uh, potentially, there was financing um, connected to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, sort of a series of sanctions violations, FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations, right? So you could sort of see a laundry list of, hey, this sounds like the story of a really corrupt organization that is operating in ways that, you know, well, there's not a plain violation of the law in the way they operate around the world. This has kind of uh, all the red flags are here about sort of something going 
wrong um, in a way that typically the Justice Department might be sort of interested in asking those questions. Now, we have far less insight into what actually occurred with respect to Russia. We have Trump Jr. making comments sort of several years ago that most of their financing was Russian money. He's since denied that as as being true. Um, But we have sort of, we have those statements. We know that Trump was trying to build a Trump Tower in Russia. He was never successful in that. Um, And then we do have this email. Michael Cohen, the president's personal lawyer, um, sends an email to Vladimir Putin's spokesperson, kind of the generic address of the spokesperson. So it's like if you tried to email Sarah Sanders and you emailed prexsecretary at whitehouse.gov or whatever sort of you thought the generic was, asking for his help, asking for Vladimir Putin's help in securing uh, permits related to a project. Um, so we know Wait, that- hold, I'm sorry. I don't know about this email. <laughs> but that sounds crazy to me. Are, Michael Cohen doing this on behalf of Donald Trump. Yes. So this occurs in 2016. And this so is January 2016, January of 2016. So he's the front runner for the Republican nomination for president. Exactly. And he has his personal lawyer asking Vladimir Putin's press secretary for so political we, help. We don't know whether or not Trump has directed Michael Cohen. Um, but as reported, and I'm looking at a business insider report because my memory is not that good. There are so many um, uh, random stories. But essentially, Michael Cohen, who's Trump's personal attorney, sent an email to Russian President Vladimir Putin's spokesperson in January 2016 asking for his, quote, assistance with a massive real estate project being pursued by the Trump organization in Russia at the time. The email, quote, over the past few months, I've been working with a company based in Russia regarding the development of Trump Tower, Moscow project in Moscow City. Um, and this is an email to Dmitry Peskov, who is the spokesperson. Uh, That's the fucking wild. <laughs> it is pretty wild. But this goes back to your thing about pre-political understandings, too. Sure. Like, whoever told or didn't tell, my, however this happened, this is something you don't do. I would agree. Now, remember, this is a personal businessman who's right. He's he's not a campaign lawyer at this point, um, but it actually gets worse. He said, without getting into lengthy specifics, the communications between our two sides have stalled. I am hereby requesting your assistance. I respectfully request someone, preferably you, contact me. So I might discuss the specifics as well as arranging meetings with the appropriate individuals. So I think what we're seeing here, and I think... Um, One way that people reacted to this story at the time was this is evidence of the lack of collusion, right? If Trump and Putin were actually sort of in cahoots, why is his random lawyer emailing the generic Peskov, you know, at Kremlin.ru address, right? So this is clearly somebody who doesn't know what's going on. They're they're um, they're trying to get help, so their uh, their project isn't working out. So sort of people were using it as examples of uh, of the lack of collusion or or the lack of a developed collusion. But what it is pretty clear evidence of is a group of people that are trying to financially profit off of what was then a presidential campaign query whether or not these same individuals continued to try and profit off of a successful clinching of the nomination, a successful election, and now the actual presidency. Because Donald Trump literally becomes more valuable in actual dollars sort of each day that passes. And so if early on, if in January 2016, we're seeing this this sort of brazen attempt um, to sort of to link the personal financial uh, interests with the, uh, the early presidential campaign, 
what kind of communications occurred sort of as he clinches the nomination, what kind of communications occurred as he actually won. I I just, (laughs) sorry, I'm totally floored by this email. I've been following the story closely and I somehow missed this bit. And I was thinking earlier when we were talking, you reminded me of Jared Kushner trying to set up a secret out of sight of (laughs) intelligence agencies communications channel with Russia. There are so many dots here and And some of them blink so red. And by the way, those are two dots that are actually confirmed. Michael (laughs) Cohen agreed he sent that email. Jared Kushner admitted to the covert channel. So one of the things that I think about when I think about the story as a whole is one thing we definitely have is a lot of people trying very hard to work together here. We have the the Donald Trump Jr. emails where he says, if it's what you say, I love it. And then he brings Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort, at that point, the two most powerful people on the campaign, to the subsequent meeting, right? People don't take meetings when they're that busy for no reason. You have an email like this from Michael Cohen, where obviously he's trying to get favorable treatment for the Trump organization from Russia, uh, you know, and, and there appears to be some kind of communications behind that that have stalled out. You know, you have so many um, efforts on the Russian uh, side now to be turning Papadopoulos to to work with Carter Page, right? There's the great stuff with Papadopoulos where uh, the the Russian academic meets him and is uninterested, then hears he works with Donald Trump, and all of a sudden it's very, very interested. It would be, one of the things I think about here is it would be at this point so amazing if everybody was trying so hard to work together and somehow it just never happened. Like, what an amazing comedy of errors and coincidences if everybody wanted to work together, if Russia wanted to infiltrate and work with the Trump side, if the Trump side wanted to work with Russia and, and get favors out of them. But somehow, despite the fact that ultimately the crime here does happen and John Podesta's emails are ripped out of the server and released in ways meant to maximally damage Hillary Clinton, that just all these different folks ended up being ships passing in the night. That's obviously a step beyond where the evidence is. But it's one of the ways in which when I try to tell this story, it becomes so hard for me to tell it innocently because it's not just that there are these dots. It's that the motivations all align too. That the, the people have expressed they're motivated and interested in doing this. And then like the thing happened on the other side. And obviously there's story left to be told in the middle, but it gets hard to see what the, for the middle to be innocent, it it would be surprising to me at this point. Uh, look, my my personal sense, and, and this is a guess because I, I do think Mueller's investigation is extraordinarily close to the vest. I think there's a lot that they know and are looking into that just we have absolutely no insight into. Um, but I would say I think the notion of a truly innocent explanation, an explanation that doesn't have really negative implications for the United States, is diminishing I also think the likelihood of uh, core criminal indictments against Trump or his senior campaign or senior staff for the actual underlying conduct, right? So actual sort of, you know, communication or collusion or campaign finance, I think that's actually diminishing as well. Why is that? Be- I think precisely because of what uh, what you describe, which is sort of, you know, all we have to work with is the public evidence. But but what we are seeing is sort of a shared motivation, uh, a shared interest, maybe uh, a willful blindness to what the other side is doing and a lot of boats rowing in the same direction, a shared lack of patriotism and, and frankly, morality. 
Um, but we aren't seeing the connective tissue that you really would need in order to prove out, uh, you know, sort of a, a criminal case. Now, questions related it doesn't to mean it didn't happen, but does mean it does not look super provable. At this yeah, point. Or, or that it didn't happen in a way that technically violates the law. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that might also be true sort of of the obstruction questions as well. Right. I, I, I do think there's a lot of evidence to sort of support the notion that there was an attempt to obstruct justice. But, you know, we aren't quite seeing that that real kind of smoking gun stuff. Um, and yet at the same time, we're seeing more and more evidence of of that motivational issue of the, frankly, comfort with uh, working with people that sort of have these interests, the lack of concern about, you know, foreign attempts to interfere in election the integrity of the election, uh, the the electoral integrity of our allies, right? So one of the reasons why uh, Barack Obama is pushed to uh, to actually impose sanctions against the Russians after the fact is not to protect the U.S. elections, you know, those are far enough in the future, but actually to protect the the French and German elections um, that were upcoming. We know that there really was interference uh, in those elections, although it was not successful. And so what you're seeing is a group of people who don't care about any of that stuff at all. Now, that's not an issue that's going to go to trial, but it's a really, really important question for the American people about whether or not this is the kind of person that should be in office. Um, And frankly, I would have predicted in the past that that would not have split along purely partisan lines. And it appears that it does, at least to a a far greater degree than I think anyone, including Republicans, would have predicted prior to this situation arising. That's another chilling part of all this. But but this is a good bridge to to the Mueller investigation. One of the questions I got the most from from folks when I asked what they wanted to hear uh, me ask you was, what is Mueller's deliverable here? Like, what, what does the Mueller investigation end in? So Mueller's deliverable is to figure out whether or not there are any federal crimes that have been committed that he believes can be proven in a court of law. And that's a pretty narrow mandate. Um, So he gets to investigate Russian interference, uh, whatever sort of investigation existed at the time of uh, that Comey gave the uh, testimony before the Hill, and then anything arising out of that, including sort of this obstruction of justice. So really what he is looking at is all of that evidence and anything that you and I are talking about and saying, well, maybe it's, it's a profound policy, right? It's really troubling behavior. He doesn't care about any of that. He's putting it to the side. He's saying, okay, what happened here? And where is the violation of law? So his deliverable at the end of all of this is going to be a recommendation to his boss, who is Rod Rosenstein at this point, about whether or not he believes charges should be pursued. Who against and and sort of for what? Now, there are interim things, right? So whether or not he believes that the investigation needs to continue, whether or not he believes there's a broader jurisdictional mandate, um, he might issue a report uh, and refer it to Congress. But really, he has a very, very sort of narrow deliverable. Now, that's different from the congressional investigations. The role of the congressional investigations are to do things like 
inform the American people about what happened in a way that either reveals presidential wrongdoing or reinforces presidential legitimacy by showing that there wasn't the sort of negative behavior that that the president's been accused of, and also uh, unearthing any information that might be relevant to taking legislative steps, right? So uh, passing things like laws that say uh, you have to release your tax returns or um, more carefully defining what uh, conversations can take place during the transition period or prior to an election, right? So really, whenever we're talking about the presidential legitimacy question or the public information question, that is the role of Congress, and, and that's the role of those investigations, and it really is not Robert Mueller's job. So what you're saying there is that going back to the idea that there might be many ways that this happened that are quite scary, but are not literally criminal or cannot be proven criminal. It's actually not Mueller's job to inform the American people of them. It's not Mueller's job to have an opinion about them. It might be that this is quite bad and damning in the full story, but it is not a set of prosecutable crimes. And plausibly, we wouldn't even end up knowing about it all. Yeah, so think about Mueller like you think about any FBI agent any AUSA at the Justice Department, when they're investigating you for a crime, at the end of the day, they either indict you for that crime and say, we believe that you committed this crime and we're going to try and prove it in a court of law, or they say nothing. It's not their job. Unless it's Hillary Clinton's emails. Unless it's Hillary an important asterisk. Um, But right, and that's one of the reasons why that was such a controversial thing is because once they've decided not to pursue charges, it is not the job of the FBI or the Justice Department to talk about whether you're a good or a bad person, whether or not you lied to people who it wasn't a crime to lie to, uh, you know, to in any way assess or reveal your motivations. It's just supposed to be, uh, you know, if we think there's if we think there's a crime, we, we have to prove it in a court of law. If we don't, then we have to let it go. It would be almost inappropriate for Mueller to come forward and, and try and give an overly full account. The other sort of thing that operates in the background here is, of course, that there used to be special independent counsel regulations um, that led to a lot of really negative consequences um, in past uh, uh, presidential investigations, right? So the Star Report, um, the prior laws had actually uh, mandated for the special counsel to release these reports at the end. Um, We saw how that led to things that might reasonably be described as a witch hunt. For example, there's a reason why Congress decided to allow that law to lapse. Um, And so it's also a reason why we should have very tempered expectations of Mueller. Now, at the same time, we should have much higher expectations out of Congress. We're seeing hugely worrying signs about those investigations. And I think they are almost certain to failed to fulfill their mandates. Um, Including the Senate one, which I think people have had a higher view of than the House one. The House investigation has been sort of more partisan and dysfunctional from the beginning. The Senate investigation is a good faith effort. Um, It's not without politics. um, That's certainly true. Uh, Richard Burr and Mark Warner have worked pretty well together. They actually appear to be working well together kind of in response to the House being so incredibly dysfunctional, right, that their their sort of response to seeing that is, is to trying to sort of be as united as possible. Uh, the problem and the reason why the Senate sort of can't possibly deliver uh, what we need them to is because, so this is an investigation that's being undertaken in the Senate Intelligence Committee. It's not staffed. 
specifically for this investigation. Uh, it doesn't have the kind of resourcing. Uh, it doesn't have the broad jurisdictional mandates, right? So basically what happened is uh, sort of early uh, in the Trump administration and, and certainly um, uh, rapidly fo following the um, the firing of James Comey, there was a lot of pressure for either the formation of a bipartisan commission, something that was in the model of the 9-11 commission, or the, uh, the formation of a select committee. So a select committee is the model of Iran-Contra, Watergate, right? So this is where you Ultimately actually— Ultimately Benghazi. Right, right. Like, uh, just to me, it's like one of these things, we know Russia did intervene in the 2016 election, <laughs> and we won't form a select committee, but Benghazi. Yes. Um, and now Benghazi is clearly translated into um, high priorities for diplomatic security uh, in this administration. That's sarcasm. Yes, right. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but but no, the, sh the sort of the sham of of the Benghazi investigation. I, I, I think it's fair to say, uh, considering how much they've sort of dropped any pretense of it. Um, but the reason why you have these select committees or or potentially a bipartisan commission is because what it allows you to do is devote resources. Now, remember, the intelligence committees and their staffs actually have a full time job to do, a more than full time job to do. They have to oversee the intelligence community. They are already sort of chock full of work. Now you're asking sort of them to peel off some of their staff part time to look into this question. Their jurisdiction is actually limited to the committee's jurisdiction, the intelligence committee's jurisdiction. So that means that it's sort of an open question whether or not they get to look into obstruction of justice at the FBI, right? That's a judiciary uh, issue. That's not an intelligence committee issue, right? And so one of the reasons why you would want to form a select committee is to uh, give things like the power to subpoena um, really broad jurisdiction, resourcing. Those are all the hallmarks of a serious investigation, what we saw Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan do in order to sort of alleviate that pressure was to say, no, 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 no. We don't need to have a select committee. We don't need to have a bipartisan commission because our intelligence uh, committees are already so committed to this bipartisan investigation. All of these issues fit neatly within their jurisdiction. We don't really have to do anything else. Now what we're seeing is sort of a bait and switch. You know, a year later, they aren't really all that bipartisan, at least not on the House side. And we're seeing the kind of jurisdictional tricks occurring, right? They are choosing not to look at everything or not having this wide-ranging investigation because they're limited within their own jurisdictions. And we're seeing that the majorities, at least on the House, are not issuing sort of the subpoenas, potentially trying to shut down the investigations prematurely. So this is all sort of a, a pretty a neat trick um, in, in terms of what was promised and what will ultimately be delivered. At this point, though, I, I think sort of the basic question is even just looking at the Senate, sort of the most functioning investigation, even assuming good faith on sort of the, the part of everybody, the notion that they're actually going to be able to deliver a report that fully accounts for what occurred, it seems pretty unlikely. So that, I guess, brings us back then to the Mueller investigation. And I, I want to go through then a couple of the points in the GOP's emergent and I think at this point, pretty seriously taken case against Mueller. Um, it it's definitely appears to me there are a lot of House Republicans trying to set the framework for firing him. Uh, some of them have been on the record about that. And, and so I guess let's begin here. That, that Mueller was a close friend of James Comey's and that he therefore cannot be objective. So 
That is false. Um, Which part of it? That he was a close friend of James Comey's? Uh, right. So uh, I had heard that too early on. Yeah. So this is sort of this is a little bit of a myth that has emerged um, about sort of the the close personal friendship between um, uh, Comey and Mueller. Uh, that is not supported anywhere. I believe Comey has said that he uh, personally dined with Mueller uh, three times, two or three times, sort of in the course of the period of time in which they've known each other. Certainly, they were colleagues at the Justice Department. Certainly, they're one of of, you know, a handful, meaning two or three individuals that have held particular roles. Um, certainly, they have expressed a high level of professional regard for one another. Um, they knew one another, but sort of this notion that they are close personal friends is um, is not supported anywhere in the record uh, and actually has been refuted by sort of, I mean, neither one of them has come out to say we're actually not friends, um, but has been refuted by whenever they've been asked to offer specifics about the degree of contact that they've had. Um, it certainly is a degree of contact that is more... Uh, consistent with uh, a, a, you know, cordial workplace acquaintance and far less like a, a, uh, a intimate personal friend. All right. Second, that, that Mueller's team is politically biased, that there's an FBI agent who sent a bunch of text messages calling Trump an idiot, saying Clinton should win $100 million to zero. There's just a lack of political credibility amongst that operation. Yeah. So a couple things. One, all people are politically biased. All people have personal views, especially people you? who work in the government. I know this is really <laughs> shocking, um, right? FBI agents vote in presidential elections. Um, journalists do too sometimes. Like This is like a, a dirty secret, although I guess some journalists actually don't vote. Yeah, Len Downey famously, but most journalists do. Yes, um, um, or, and, and the very least do harbor some sort of political preference in their hearts. And so, I slightly believe that the ones who don't probably hold the strongest political preferences. Right. <laughs> Not Downey, but, but, but some of the others. Some Sometimes right. if you're if you're protesting that much, there's a <laughs> right. The the test here is not about whether or not you have individual beliefs. It's whether or not you've done your job uh, free of any kind of bias or prejudice. And so using sort of um, evidence that somebody has partisan views or has political beliefs as evidence that they can't do their job, one, sort of doesn't accord with common sense. Two, it's, it's actually forbidden under Department of Justice rules. You aren't allowed to ask somebody whether or not they're a Democrat or a Republican whenever you're staffing a particular investigation. Now, the FBI agent and FBI attorney um, in that case showed bad judgment. Um, as soon as Robert Mueller learned of that bad judgment, he removed the, the remaining individual from the case immediately. The bad judgment just being sending these texts expressing his personal opinions. Well, so the, the real bad judgment being um, that they appeared to be engaged in an extramarital affair. Ordinarily, that's sort of a private family matter. Um, whenever you are a counterintelligence agent or an individual who works uh, with classified information, you potentially open yourself up to the risk of blackmail. Right. Um, and so it does take on sort of a heightened security issues. Uh, you know, right. And these text messages are between these two people having an affair. Exactly. That's the issue. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think Mueller takes um, appropriate steps in deciding, you know, to remove this individual from the case. But there's actually nothing whatsoever to suggest that their individual views 
in any way improperly influenced uh, the way they carried out the investigation. Mueller takes really, really swift action in response. This is actually in keeping with sort of his historical uh, practices, right? So uh, there's a great story about uh, when Mueller was the FBI director and one of the agents in charge in Louisiana or somebody, something gave an interview saying that he might one day run for political office um, and that Mueller had fired him so quickly that the Justice Department hadn't even learned about the interview before they called him at noon to figure out what was going on. And he'd like already dismissed the guy. He takes these things, these, these questions of sort of the perception of bias incredibly strongly. So one sort of the underlying uh, notion that people don't have partisan uh, views in the first place, no, this is about sort of a separation. To the idea that any of this renounced to Mueller, no, he actually takes it incredibly seriously and sort of takes immediate uh, ameliorative action. Third, um, you know, the Ken Starr investigation was famously staffed by conservatives, right? I mean, um, the notion that a special counsel investigation is supposed to be a wholly unpartisan undertaking, you know, by individuals committed to nothing but the rule of law. Uh, this is actually a deeply held belief that many Republicans are discovering for the very first time because they enthusiastically um, uh, sort of cheered for the appointment of of Ken Starr, someone who was identifiably a conservative. Um, finally, Robert Mueller is a registered Republican. We don't know how he votes uh, now, and we don't know what his personal views about Donald Trump are now. Reportedly, the president thought highly enough about Robert Mueller shortly prior to his appointment of special counsel that he actually considered asking him to be the FBI director again, interviewed him for the job. So, this has sort of all the hallmarks of a bunch of nonsense. Um, I actually don't necessarily think that the campaign about Mueller is a campaign to fire him. I actually think, and uh, Josh Barrow and others have sort of offered this theory as well, it's the alternative to firing him. Instead of firing Mueller, if you attempt to undermine his legitimacy and credibility such that whatever report he issues at the end of the day if it's uh, if it's unfavorable, if it has information you you know you would prefer not get onto the public, you've already undermined his legitimacy. So you just you you try and sort of undercut whatever sort of the ultimate product is in advance. That's not about firing Mueller, although maybe the president will. That's that's instead of firing Mueller. That's about trying to undermine the investigation just as a general matter. That's a very good point. Um, all right, the last piece of this that has begun to come up a lot is this idea of the dossier. Um, this is a dossier eventually leaked out by BuzzFeed, but that was done by a British former espionage agent. Uh, it was initially funded by a right-wing opposition research group. Eventually, some money was routed through the Clinton campaign. And one of the versions of this I've heard is, why is having a former intelligence officer run around Russia trying to get dirt on Donald Trump different than talking to a Russian lawyer and trying to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. Like, what do you think of the Republican argument that the dossier itself is collusion against Donald Trump? Like, is that fair? 
No, unless you're defining collusion as just sort of anything that's uh, that's contrary to the interest, right? So there's no evidence that the dossier was was undertaken uh, in coordination with a foreign government. The mere fact that there are Republicans and Democrats who are, uh, you know, financing this thing at various times. I think is evidence that sort of this is the the nature of opposition research here is uh, is different in kind. You know, the other thing is the the uh, the collusion that is at the core of uh, sort of the the Trump Jr. meeting, for example, um, is stolen and hacked emails. Right? It's, it's sort of your uh, you're receiving the the proceeds of a crime itself. Um, sort of the the kind of broad research of you know what was a presidential candidate up to when he was abroad. Uh, that's just it, it's it's a wholly different thing now. If Hillary Clinton won the election, there might be difficult questions related to that. Um, if we decide that one of the appropriate legislative responses is to more carefully define uh, either campaign finance or general laws to say what kinds of relationships with foreign nationals are acceptable, um, it, it might be a, a valid sort of policy aim to say, hey, even this is something that we don't really want to see happening. But the notion that that somehow, one, has anything to do with uh, sort of the the current collusion issue, right, that it somehow uh, uh, gets Trump off the hook, right, it just kind of has nothing to do with that. Second, the idea that it undercuts, either undercuts or supports the validity of what's actually in the dossier itself uh, you know, that also doesn't hold water. I'll just add one thing on that that I thought is very weird about the argument against the dossier, which is, to me, a lot of things in this whole discussion, this whole story, boil down to, and then when you heard the thing, did you tell someone? Did you go to the FBI? Did you try to alert American authorities? Did you try to do something because you thought Russia had um, unacceptable leverage or an unacceptable intervention in, into the American political process? And as I understand the the dossier, the guy behind it ends up putting the other saying, which, you know, who knows, I don't know which parts of it are or not true, but then starts running around with his hair on fire trying to get it into the hands of the American intelligence community so they can do something about it. Whereas the whole Trump campaign issue so far is Russians keep trying to work with them. They keep trying to work with Russians. Apparently, Papadopoulos knows about the email hacks and they do not tell the FBI. Instead, they're retweeting WikiLeaks and, you know, do, doing all this stuff. And, and that to me is this this big piece of it that, yes, if the Trump campaign had heard some of this or seen some of this and gone to authorities, we'd be having a very different conversation. I think that's right. Um, and and there's not any evidence that sort of the, the Clinton campaign had this precise dossier, right? Had they, had they actually sat on it, um, maybe there would be sort of harder questions about their own conduct. You know, look, the, the dossier is a raw intelligence product. It's some mix of fact and fiction. Um, you know, some of it will be corroborated. That doesn't mean the rest of it's true. Some of it's going to be false. That doesn't mean the rest of it's false. It's, it's, just, it's just kind of a thing that, you know, I... Only time will tell, and actually maybe time will never tell plenty of it. Um, but I, I think that I think that it has occupied an outsized place in this conversation. I think it was always peripheral to the investigation. I think anyone who worked in the intelligence community or in law enforcement, 
treated it with sort of appropriate skepticism. Um, and because of the salacious details or because of because it was secret um, or because of the way it was ultimately published, it ended up sort of having this really, really outsized place. You know, even if you take the dossier just completely out of all of this, you still have what the Trump campaign did and, and what they've admitted to doing. Um, and that itself is the basis of the investigation. And, and that is actually where the most disturbing stuff comes from. All these sort of other allegations are are kind of window dressing that they just uh, maybe they're they're fun or, or funny to sort of, uh, uh, you know, write obscene headlines about, but I, I don't think actually change the, those really fundamental and disturbing questions about what the president's campaign did and why. Let me ask then to, to close us out here the big other question, which is, is the lesson that Russia and North Korea and others take from this is using cybercrime and other approaches to try to interfere in foreign elections is just an incredibly high reward way to um, punish and destabilize your political enemies. I mean, what are the, what are the, what is the geopolitical aftermath of this act? So I think there's been a little bit of a tendency to sort of view Vladimir Putin as this um, ingenious puppet master who's pulling the strings everywhere and has orchestrated this brilliant campaign. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think Russia is a power in decline. And one of the things that occurs is uh, countries in decline are willing to take big risks. And as you take big risks, um, every now and then you get big payoffs. And this was a huge risk and a huge payoff. Um, they will take other risks that will not pay off. And so I think that we will see sort of a cycle of perhaps increased risk-taking in part because the sort of the rules of the road, the red lines of cyberspace and election integrity, and really it's not just about elections. We can move into sort of the, the Sony hacks from North Korea, even this most recent sort of WannaCry that the White House has attributed to North Korea as well. Um, you know, the, the rules are not hugely well-defined, and so that can, that can mean that um, a country doesn't even know how large of a risk it's taking. Um, Certainly, I think we will see Russia attempt to interfere in elections moving forward. They've done it a lot in the past, um, and the United States has done almost nothing to meaningfully secure 2018, 2020. Um, it hasn't done that uh, through sufficiently robust sanctions. The incoming administration, we now know, uh, helped undercut any sort of limited efficacy that that might have. So sort of the classic deterrence stuff, we just haven't done enough of. Um, and then sort of the alternative to classic deterrence, sort of this notion of deterrence by denial, get your own house in order, secure your electoral system such that they can't be hacked. Um, we also aren't seeing anywhere near sufficient attention sort of on that. So at the same time that we all have our hair on fire about what occurred in 2016, 
we are really not doing anything to prevent uh, other countries from wanting to or being able to uh you know, undertake real uh, attempts to 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 do something in, in 2018 and 2020. Well, that that's one thing that does scare me, which is, and you've done some really interesting work on this, but should we, can we trust our, like, literal election systems in 2018 and 2020? We know that there were efforts to hack actual electoral machines. Um, we don't believe those efforts were sufficiently successful to, to have turned or influenced or, or even worked in the, in the 2016 election. But if those efforts are redoubled, if they're tripled, um, you don't need to move that many counties to have a pretty big chance of of changing an election result. You just need to know which counties you're attacking. So, like, how scared of this should we be? So I think that the risk of a hostile foreign adversary or or a foreign country being able, or or anybody really, um, being able to predictably change the the outcome of an election, right? So I hack voting machines to get the candidate that I want to win to win. Um, To be able to do that without detection that's a that's a heavy lift. It requires a degree um, not only of, of sort of forensic sophistication and savvy, but also, you know, political savvy, right? So we have huge uh, campaign machines that are aimed at trying to understand which county you need which votes for. So I think that that's, that is actually a low probability, though not an impossible event. What is, um, I think, highly probable um, is an attempt to insert uncertainty. So even if we don't think that you could do it with any level of predictability, what we do know would be actually pretty easy um, is to infiltrate these systems in a way that uh, forensic experts and election experts wouldn't be able to say anymore we are positive about the integrity of this result, or we're even sufficiently confident. And I think you have to think about the nature of the threat here, not as about changing the outcomes of elections, but undermining confidence in sort of in in the outcome itself and the ability to just undermine that confidence to insert the question of, wait, are we sure this is the person we elected? That can have tremendously destabilizing effects. It's not all that difficult to do, and it's not something that we've really prepared ourselves or shored up our systems against. Um, the solutions here, um, I, you know, people are sort of interested in the the sexier sort of spy craft and deterrence and, and nation state stuff. You know, it, it's really going to come down to things like federal resourcing for states. You know, we have just wildly disparate uh, election administration. You know, it's going to come down to things like uh, changing uh, the market power of individual election vendors, right? So the people who build these machines, um, they get to set a lot of the rules in terms of the security standards of those machines, what their contracts with states looks like, their obligations to report breaches, their obligations to look for breaches in the first instance. And so that's the area in which we really do need to be thinking about, hey, how are we going to wield, you know, sort of regulatory models, federal financing, other things to really help get our election security in order? Um, it, it's it's not as dramatic as some of sort of the, the Russian spycraft stuff, but it, it really is critically important. And it's something that we are just not seeing enough attention, you know, in Congress and the executive branch about. Well, that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Susan Hennessy, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
Okay, that, that that is where we are. That is where America is, the greatest democracy the world has ever known. This is what we are living through. I was telling somebody uh, recently that I just have this continuous feeling of unreality, that, that this can't possibly be what's really going on, even as I'm covering it, watching it, writing about it, podcasting about it. I just, there's a part of me that, that believes like this is all just some elaborate joke that at some point, like the curtain is going to get pulled back and we're all going to have a good laugh but it doesn't seem to be happening yet. Anyway, thank you to Susan for being on the podcast. Thank you to my producers, Jillian Weinberger and Bert Pinkerton, engineer Peter Leonard. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we will be back next week. Mm-hmm.